Well, good morning. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. We've been looking at this Gospel for a few months now. And for the third time, in the third chapter in a row, we see Jesus predicting his death once again. As Jesus and his disciples are heading to Jerusalem, he continues to teach that his death was not accidental or incidental to his mission. Rather, his death on the cross was planned and absolutely central to both his identity and the purpose for which he came. And all three times that he shares this with his disciples, they misunderstand what he's saying. Our passage today is probably one of the most blatant examples of human self-centeredness in the contrast of Jesus' humility and self-sacrifice. And so let's look at Mark 10 together. I will be reading from verse 32 on that you could follow along in your Bible or your order of worship, or you could just listen as I read. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to them, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism for which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who consider rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, we thank you that you allow us to come to you now. For some of us, we are here and we are uh, excited about what it means to worship you. We are excited about who we are as your children. Some of us come today and we are struggling, struggling with our lives, struggling with our doubts, struggling with our pain. Some of us perhaps are coming not really sure what we believe or even why we're here. But all of us come with a need, a need for your spirit to move in our hearts to show us your love, your grace, and your son as we take the time to look at this passage this morning. In your name, amen. Well, when I was in high school, like many high schoolers, I wanted to be popular. Uh, I wasn't, by the way, but I wanted to be. And my plan, I thought, was to join a sports team. I wasn't that athletic, and I didn't really know what team to join, but I decided I'm going to go out for soccer. 
Not really a fan of soccer, but I figured, you know, I'll kick the ball around, score a bunch of goals, and then I'll become popular. So I go into my first practice uh, my freshman year, and uh, we get there, and all we do is run. The whole practice is running around the field over and over again. We never saw a ball. We never even saw the soccer field. We just ran. Well, that wasn't fun, but I decided to go back the next day to practice, and once again, we ran and ran and ran. Well, I decided to go back one more time, and when I got there and I noticed there were no soccer balls out, there were no goals set up, I looked at the coach and I said, Coach, when are we going to play a game? When are we going to hit the ball around? When are we going to scrimmage? He looked at me and he said, Son, you're not going to see a ball for a long time. Till you guys get into shape, we're not even going to begin playing this game. That was the end of my soccer career. <laughs> I never went back to practice. You know, I joined the team for the wrong reasons. I wanted to be popular. It's not because I liked the sport. I had wrong expectations of what soccer practice would be all about. To me, it should be fun, enjoyable, not a time to get into shape. And I asked the wrong question. I didn't ask the coach, how can I improve? How do I get better at soccer? How do I get in shape? I asked, hey, when are we going to have fun? I had a lot of wrong expectations about that sport. <laughs> well, our passage today has a lot of wrong expectations as well. And these disciples that we are going to look at have the wrong agenda, again, about who Jesus is and why he came. And two of the three leaders of the disciples go and ask Jesus a wrong question. You know, I said at the beginning that Jesus has beginning to give his disciples, again, another clear picture of what was in store for him and them as they go into Jerusalem, and they miss the point. We see once again the, the scriptures describe the disciples as those who were amazed and those who followed Jesus were afraid. They were amazed because Jesus kept going to Jerusalem even though there was so much conflict at hand. And they were afraid because they weren't sure what that meant for them. In fact, amazement and fear highlight their increasingly inability and unwillingness to accept Jesus' agenda for himself and for those who follow him. Now, it is very easy for us to critique these followers of Jesus, these disciples, to point to their flaws and their failure to understand and say, don't be like them. And look, I do want to examine their misunderstandings because I think we find them in our hearts as well. But before we look at their flaws on how they view Jesus and themselves, I want us to notice something about these disciples they do keep following Jesus. They haven't left Jesus. Many have up to this point, but in our passage it says, in their fear and amazement, they still followed after Jesus. They kept missing the point of who Jesus was, and Jesus in his mercy and grace keeps allowing them to be with him. Now these chosen disciples were not as impressive as they might have thought, but Jesus still loves them and leads them. All of us, we are not as impressive as we might think when it comes to following Jesus. Many of us in this room at times confuse God's words and we fail to follow God's commands. Many of us in this room today have a lot of questions and doubts and struggles when it comes to our faith and what we believe. And Jesus is just as gracious to us as he was to the disciples. Jesus lets us follow him in all our imperfections. 
Jesus lets us follow him in all our doubts. Jesus lets us follow him in all our false agendas and misunderstandings of who he is. And this is such good news for us today. These fearful and amazed and confused disciples blew it again. And Jesus looks at them and says, let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. Every single person in this room today, all of us that struggle and have times of doubt and questioning of God, you know what Jesus says to us? I am going to go to Jerusalem and suffer for you. I am willing to be spit upon for your sake. I am willing to be beaten because of you. I am willing to die for your sake. Do we actually believe this to be true? And I'm not saying do we believe this cognitively. If you grew up in the church, we know the story. Jesus came, he died for our sins. But does it impact our hearts at all? Does that truth affect our lives at all? Do we believe that he loves us so much he would suffer this for you and me? I really don't think that we truly grasp this because if we did, I think it would change how we live our lives. So our family recently has been uh, re-watching some TV shows and we just re-watched The Office with a couple of my kids. And if you've ever seen the American version of The Office, the main character is named Michael Scott, played by Steve Carell. And if you've ever seen an episode, you know that Steve Carell as Michael Scott is the most awkward, uncomfortable person to watch on TV. There were episodes where I literally would leave the room and my son would get so mad at me and say, it's not real, Dad, but it felt so real I couldn't look at it. This man is so awkward and so uncomfortable to watch. And I was talking to Pastor Dave about an episode recently, and Pastor Dave said, can you imagine if you were like Michael Scott? And I was like, no way. He's the most uncomfortable man on TV. I never would want to be like him. And Pastor Dave said, yeah, but can you imagine not really caring what other people think about you like he does? Can you imagine having the confidence to think that you are that funny? You are that cool? You are the best boss ever? You know, it is true. If you've watched the show, Michael Scott thinks that he is better than everyone else and he is clueless even when he makes mistakes, which he does often. He just gets right back up and starts living his life in joy. Where can we get that confidence? If you're like me, when I make a mistake, when I screw up, when I say something dumb to someone, I replay it over my mind again and again and again, and it kills me. Where do we go when we struggle? Where do we go when we feel insecure? Why don't we have the confidence and the boldness? And how could we grow in boldness and confidence even when we make mistakes? Well, it's not in just being clueless like Michael Scott. It's not pretending that we are better than we are. It's not trying to convince ourselves that we're the world's best followers of Jesus. I believe confidence and boldness would happen if we truly believe that Jesus loved us this much to die. If we truly believe that he looks at you and says, you are worth it to suffer for. You are worth it to be beaten for. You are worth it to die for. If we actually took this truth that many of us say we believe and let it soak into our lives, it would move us and change us and cause us to live out our life in confidence and boldness.
Can you imagine the type of people we would be if we actually believed this deeply in our heart that we were loved by God this much? Can you imagine what type of church we can be if we were full of people that believed that we were that loved by God? Man, let's pray that that happens more and more in our lives. But getting back to the text in front of us, Jesus gives this powerful description of what's about to happen and how did the disciples respond? Well, James and John, the brothers, slide up next to Jesus. Hey, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. They come up to Jesus and they say, look, we got a favor to ask you. Now, again, we have to look at their self-centered question that they're asking, but we also need to realize there's faith in this question. What we read about in the scriptures, including the Gospel of John, is that Jesus said, if you ask for me anything in my name, I will give it to you. So these disciples actually have faith. Jesus taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. We are called to ask for things from God. The problem is not asking Jesus for something. He tells us to turn to him with our needs. The problem is when our needs and our desires and our wants are not in line with what Jesus desires. And once again, Jesus shows amazing grace to these disciples. And he asks them the question, what do you want me to do for you? This is what I've entitled this sermon today, and it is a great question. I would encourage you uh, to take some time today or this week to really think about that question. Jesus looks at you and he says, what do you want me to do for you? How would we answer that? What would we say? What do you want from him today? And some of you, I'm sure, don't believe that he ever asks that anymore. Some of you, I think, don't believe that you can ask God for things because he doesn't seem to listen. Some of you have been waiting a long time for some good things that you want, and God seems silent. I am sorry for the pain that it is when we wait on God and it seems like he's not listening. I'm sorry that some of you have stopped asking God for things because you don't believe he cares for you enough. I do believe Jesus still asks us today, what do you want me to do for you? And I think we need to have the faith to ask him for things. But the problem is when we ask him for things, often it lays bare our true motives and reveals that we often seek after our own needs and desires and wants more than what God desires. I mean, you got to give it to James and John. They at least answered honestly. You know what they wanted? Power, glory, recognition. They want to turn Jesus' messianic journey to Jerusalem into a march to glory with them on his side. Now here's Jesus talking about all the things he's about to give up, and these two disciples come to him with a list of things that they want him to give. They want glory. They want honor. They want status. This is a struggle for many of us in this room today, I believe. So many of us are consumed with making sure that we are recognized for what we do. Many of us, and I will put myself on this list for sure, are driven by making sure that people notice us or like us or think we have it together. 
And it's tiring. It's tiring to always be so afraid of what other people are thinking about us. And Jesus, once again, offers grace to the disciples and tells them, you do not know what you are asking. Jesus doesn't yell at his selfish disciples. He doesn't get angry at their self-centered requests. Instead, in love, he says, I know you do not know what you are asking. Then he gives the opportunity again to teach about his suffering. He uses some of the Old Testament imagery that the disciples would have been aware of. Drinking the cup and the baptism Jesus is talking about relates to the deep suffering and the, uh, for sin that was prophesied by the prophets of old. The cup specifically refers to the wrath and justice of God against sin. Soon Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and take on the full cup of wrath himself. On the cross, he drank the cup that we deserved, so that we will never drink the cup of God's wrath. On the cross, Jesus was plunged into deep darkness. He was baptized beneath the waters of death so that our sins may be forgiven. Jesus was not just sprinkled with a little bit of suffering. He was immersed, submerged in it. And so Jesus wants to know, can his disciples suffer like this? And once again, their false self-confidence comes out. We are able, they say, We can do what you called us to do, Jesus. No, they can't. No one can. Only Jesus and Jesus alone can take on what we deserved, the wrath of God, in order to pay for the sins of the world. Only Jesus is the one who suffers for our sin and pays for the sins of every one of us that believe on him. This is the truth, that we don't suffer for our sins. Jesus did that already. But, As we see in Scripture, including Jesus' words here, if we follow Jesus, we will experience at times suffering and pain. In fact, earlier in this gospel, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To follow Jesus means to become a servant, and at times it means to suffer. To follow Jesus means to follow the path of the cross, to follow the path of denial and sacrifice, and this will be costly at times. Now, many in our world and in our history know more about the reality of suffering than any of us will ever experience. Many people in our world today long to have the religious freedom that we have today, to just gather and worship together. We might never face the suffering and the persecution that the disciples faced where most, if not all of them, were killed for their faith. But if we live for Jesus, we will face suffering and we will struggle because to live for him means we can't just live for our own needs and wants. To live for Jesus means we cannot live just for our security and our comfort. To live for Jesus means we can't just live for ourselves and our own needs. We have to be servants that are willing to sacrifice for others and for God. Now, James and John did not live this way at this time. They mainly lived for themselves. And this selfish act, or the selfish ask of the disciples, caused the other ten to be upset. Now, knowing what we know about the disciples, they were probably upset because they weren't the first to ask Jesus for this. They probably were upset because they thought they missed out on the opportunity to get the glory seats. So what Jesus does, as he often does, is he takes the opportunity to teach, to teach about his kingdom and how upside down God's kingdom is compared to the world around us. 
Jesus talks about how this kingdom that he is bringing about promotes the greatness of service more than the greatness of power and authority. The kingdom which Jesus is bringing about is a kingdom where sacrifice and service is more important than power and freedom. Over against the cultural acceptance and expectation of greatness and authority, a follower of Jesus is to be a servant and slave of all. Last week, we saw the reversal of God's kingdom in the sense that he said the first will be last and the last will be first. And now here he takes it even a step further. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave. What Jesus commands his disciples here, he commands you and me as well. If you are a follower of Jesus today, you are commanded to love and serve others. You are commanded to deny your own needs and look out to the needs of others. We are not to live for greatness and recognition, but rather we are to live as servants and slaves to others. Disciples of Jesus should be marked as those that are humble and servants. Serving others is not just a gift that some people have in this church. Serving others is a call for every single one of you in this church. And let me just say, many of you take this call really seriously. From helping us provide over 30 backpacks for refugee children through World Relief this fall, to serving breakfast regularly at Breakthrough Urban Ministries to the men and women in the homeless shelters, to sponsoring a child at Haiti, to serving our city or our community. So many of you take this call to serve seriously. Many of you sacrifice your time and your energy to serve others. You volunteer downstairs and you serve our children of this church. You use your gifts to serve and help us to worship together. Some of you go and you serve by making coffee or cleaning up after the coffee hour between the services. Many of you open up your homes to small groups or just to have people over for dinner. I could go on and on and on. So many of you volunteer your time, your money, and your energy through this church and through other organizations, and you are doing exactly what Jesus has called us to do. So well done. And if maybe you're not serving right now, maybe it's been a season of time where you haven't had time, Maybe you're just not feeling it. Maybe you're coming back to church and you just really haven't gotten plugged in yet. I don't want to guilt you into serving. I want to offer you the privilege of serving. This is a good thing to serve. It is what we're called to do, and I want to encourage you. We can find a place for you to serve. Talk to one of the pastors. We would love to let you use your gifts to serve God and this church. And the good news is every single one of us in this room can do this very call to serve. The good news is every single one of us in this room has what it takes to serve God. From the children in our church to the oldest people we have in our church, we all have what it takes to serve God. I'm sure some of you are familiar with one of my favorite quotes from Dr. Martin Luther King uh, about this good news that we can serve. Dr. King in the late 60s in one of his sermons said this, everyone can be great because everyone can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. 
You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Brothers and sisters, all we need is a heart full of grace. All we need is to realize what has been given to us that gives us the privilege to respond in service. And what have we been given? Well, our last verse sums up really what Jesus came to do and all that we have been given. In fact, I easily could spend a whole sermon or two just on this one verse. Some say it's the pivotal verse in the whole book of Mark. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus doesn't just call us to serve. He, as the Son of Man, leads the charge in serving. And his service led to his death so that we can be set free. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for us. A ransom was a payment given to those who were slaves or in prison. A ransom was a payment to release someone from captivity. The Bible is clear. Without Jesus, we are all held captive to sin and death and pain and suffering and futility. But Jesus came and he was willing to give his life to set you and me free. The only way any of us in this room that are followers of Jesus can do what he commands us to do is to believe that he has gone before us and released us from our prison of sin and self-decay and sickness and futility. And he sets us free and says, come, follow me. May we believe this today. May we believe that when Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? The ultimate answer is, he died for us. He set us free and he lets us follow him. May we realize in times of trouble and suffering, in times of sacrifice and service, on the path towards the cross, Jesus leads the way, says, come to me. I will love you, and we can serve this world that I love with my kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to worship you, to serve you, and to love you. Father, thank you that we do not have it in ourselves to do it, but you give us what we need. And so, Father, I pray for each one of us in this room. Show us those areas in our lives that we need to let go of to follow you. And then show us those areas in this church, in this city, in this world, where we can be used by you to love others and to serve others through your grace and mercy. In your name, amen. Let's stand together. The Father sends His Son, our Lord, to be His bright and shining Word. Come, Lord, ride out Your gleaming course and be our dawn, our light's true. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. 
Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Before we come to this feast together, let's take a few moments to greet each other in the name of Christ.